You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Hey, Dave, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Nick. How are you? Podcast Friday, my friend. Doesn't get better than this. Hey, it's summer's right. back. Summer is today. here. <laughs> is it? Is it? Yeah. Well, there's about a 10 degree difference between you and me, but I'll take 70 over 80. So I'm happy. There you go. There I'm you happy go. with that. And still wear, wear jeans and be comfortable. It's my threshold. 80s too hot for you Northerners. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Got winter in my bones. <laughs> Speaking of hot, we got a great podcast today, Dave. We are going to go over our, your specifically, worst and best personal money move. So I'm excited to learn a little bit more about yes. young Dave Shotwell and some of the financial decisions that you made that you've probably learned some lessons from. Yeah. And, and I'm willing to do this because I know your time is going to come. So, <laughs> so turnabout will be fair play and sometimes Indeed. it's better to go first, right? That's so, right. yeah. And, you know, by way of context, you know, we've made lots, we both like every other human on the planet have made lots of money decisions at this point in our life. Some, some were good, some were bad. These ones that I'm going to mention the good and the bad have, have just kind of stuck with me over time as mm. things that, boy, I wish I had that to do over again or or the lessons stuck with me, you know, so. It's interesting because I think people assume that you and I being financial planners and having <laughs> lots of experience means that we never screwed up along the way, right? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, clients, uh, clients are often surprised when you when you tell them about mistakes you've made or things you almost did or oh yeah yeah, yeah. like like, so, we, like we we came out of high school just ready to go right we yeah, we knew right. it all we thought we knew well, it all but. It reminds me of uh, growing up. I don't know if we've ever discussed this on the podcast or not, but my dad used to be a pastor for a Christian reformed church Mm, and my grandparents were missionaries. And so of course, all of the church goers thought that the pastor was, you know, basically perfect, right? Never made Mm -hmm. a mistake, never (laughs) got angry. And I'm sitting there going, oh, (laughs) yeah, 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 I'm sure. I'm sure. So, so yeah. financial planners are the same way, right? We make mistakes, yeah. we learn lessons and we move Absolutely. on and try to get better. So Absolutely. So so I've picked a few and I'm probably cherry picking, but hey, here we go. All right. Let, let us have it. Back in 2004, we owned a house that we knew wasn't going to work for us long term. And we found a house that we liked better for the long term. And we hadn't sold our original house yet. And it was 2004 and the housing market was doing pretty well and interest rates were pretty low. And we talked to realtors and bankers and heard everything we wanted to hear about how we should be able to buy the, buy the new house that we wanted and, and at the same time list our existing house and we would sell it with no problem. And it might take a month or two, but everything would be fine. And the bank was willing to do kind of a funky loan arrangement where we had a regular conventional mortgage for 30 years with a fixed rate and a special short-term higher interest loan for the 20% down payment that we didn't have, but would have as soon as we sold the other house Mm. with the idea that we could turn around and pay that loan off as soon as we sold the other house. Yep. 
well, we kind of hit the peak of the housing market, at least in our little area. The, the housing bubble kind of broke earlier than other places. And all of a sudden, it was impossible to sell the, the other house after we had closed on the new house. There we were owning two houses for the better part of two years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, in retrospect, it all worked out okay. Um, the main takeaway that I often share with clients about that was just how stressful it was. It wasn't that we couldn't make the payments and cover the utility bills. It was more about how scary it was that maybe we couldn't. Mm-hmm. And, and just the, the feeling of wastefulness, right? Here we were yeah. with this, with this, with two, you know, twice as much house as we needed with no use for, for the other part. And, yeah. you know, we talked about, we talked about renting out the, the, the old house. We talked about different things, different scenarios. And, you know, in retrospect, if I knew it was going to be two years, I might've tried to find a renter, but it was always like, oh no, let's just lower the price again a little bit. And by the time we sold that house two years later, I think our asking price was about 60% of what our original asking price was. Wow. Finally sold. Yeah. It all worked out, but you know, it was pretty stressful. It was pretty wasteful. You know, I, it, I, it was another 20 some years before I made a housing transaction that I was proud of to kind of make up for it. Wow. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, you know, that was, that was definitely like of all the money things we've done over the years. I mean, there were times, you know, when we were younger, when, you know, we weren't sure how we were going to pay for diapers and formula, but that's just normal, like being right. young and having kids. Right. But this was kind of a, a, one of those things where we were both like, like within a month or two, we were both like, boy, we're smarter than this and we should have known better. Yeah. And Life goes on, but that's one that I've always thought, boy, you know, to have that money in the bank at different times would have been pretty nice. (laughs) So live and learn, right? Yeah. So that's interesting. You know, two years is a long time to be holding on Mm -hmm. to a second house. So, and actually kudos to you guys for, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have been able to make it through, right? Like taking care of two houses when you only planned on taking care of one, the mortgages and everything. So you had to have some good backstop. And I'm curious, like, what were some of the things that you did to make sure that you had enough for that beforehand to kind of get through that period? Well, you know, obviously discretionary spending Mm -hmm. was, um, was an issue, you know, we we thought... And, and neither one of us were really good. Like we hadn't learned all the budgeting lessons that we know now too. So it wasn't, uh, it was definitely stressful. I, I can't think, I can't say like we went without things that, you know, where it, you know, where it probably played out the most is that there were things we would have normally done to the new house. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you know, the normal stuff when you move in, you know, your furniture doesn't quite fit those kind of things. And we delayed a lot of that for, for several years because, you know, we, we had to get caught up then. And that's probably where it played out the most, but you know, we were both working 40 plus hours a week at the time. Our kids were young, but not, they weren't like in like had lots of like discretionary activities and things going on yet at that point, they were both pretty young. And, um, so it, uh, you know, I don't think it had any like 
real adverse impacts on on what we would have done otherwise, other than just feeling insecure about money and feeling we didn't have a lot of margin there to make mistakes. So, well, and, yeah. you know, back in back in 2004, they were basically giving away mortgages. So, oh, you know, you, yeah. did, you did a decent job of making sure that you didn't overextend on the new house so that you could right. cover both payments, right? Because right? I'm sure they probably right. let you back then. Well, and, you know, the one the one mortgage had an adjustable rate and lucky for us, the interest interest rate environment was such that shortly thereafter, interest rates started to fall. Like we never, like we never had to worry about higher payments because of it. Oh, and that's, that's another aspect of it that I guess when you ask about like the longer term implications, we, when we did finally sell the um, old house, we didn't have enough to pay off that special higher interest, flexible, you know, adjustable rate mortgage. So we ended up carrying that for a number of years, probably another four or five years and just, you know, making bigger payments on it and trying to get rid of it. But I've always felt, <laughs> you know, I hate to say lucky in the context of the financial crisis, but a lot of that played out during the financial crisis when interest rates went way, way down. And so the payments on that adjustable rate mortgage portion of what we did to finance the new house actually went down during that period and made it easier instead of harder. But yeah. boy, was, you know, in 2006 or so, that was, that was kind of part of the, the fear was that, that that mortgage payment was going to keep going up and it was already right. kind of a stretch. So yeah, lots of great lessons there. Adjustable rate mortgages and the... Oh yeah, I could, <laughs> I could talk for an hour about, about why that was uncomfortable, but just uh, it was part and parcel of the whole problem. Yeah, so for sure, it, for sure. It's also interesting how that, like I've had to be careful over the years, like whenever clients bring up a funky proposed real estate transaction, my first reaction is, oh gosh, no, don't do that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sometimes I need to step back and say, okay, you know, it's not the same situation. They're not the same people. We can talk about the pros and the cons and we can talk about why why I feel the way I do, but I've got to be careful not to like be over biased the other way. Yeah. That's definitely um, one of the things as financial planners is obviously we have our own biases that <laughs> right, we have to kind right. of think about when we're <laughs> helping people figure things out for themselves. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. Like, and, and many to ways it, to do something. Yeah. And it's a sample size of one. So you, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you've got to, got to be careful. It, it, it's having your own experience be too overbearing on, on, on your advice giving. So let's switch over to the other side, Dave. What's some of your um, best personal money moves that you were? Yeah. Well, I picked this one because it's kind of, it's kind of a closed loop. This is one where it was like a long-term savings plan that we've actually seen all the way through fruition, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like we've made good moves for our retirement. We've done it, but that's still a story yet to be written. We did what I consider, especially in the context of like where we were coming from and that it was all going on at the same time as what we were just talking about is um, what we did to save for our kids' educations. So when I look back on that, you know, I'm pretty, pretty proud of the fact that we started 529 plans for the kids. Like, right, I was brand new in this business. It was like the first, one of the first things I did for myself that we were also doing for clients. My daughter was about three and my son was a newborn. And we committed 
right then to putting money away for their education. And it was at a time when, like I said, you know, things were, things weren't as nailed down in our own, like overall financial picture. There were other things that could easily, we could easily have been talked into other priorities. Sure. You know, and we started small. I think when I first started, we were doing like 50 bucks a month each and Mm -hmm. raised that to a hundred bucks each, not too long down the road. But, you know, that, and that was, that was a commitment at the time, you know, a hundred bucks a month, 200 bucks a month was a big deal, you know, and I was still learning like, like the whole concept of long-term, you know, compounding, especially the fact that this was in the mid, like I started in the industry in the midst of the tech crash, right? None of my clients had made a dime in the stock market. All we were doing was playing triage and like trying to help people figure out if they were if they had ruined it, <laughs> yeah. if they, you know, everybody was in a panic because so many people had taken more risk than they were comfortable with. And yeah. so it was a little bit of a leap of faith on my own personal part to say, Hey, you know, this is exactly what we're telling these clients. They need, you know, to trust in the long term compound, you know, compounding returns and not right. worry about what's going on right now. So it was kind of, an interesting, like, can I put my own money where my mouth is kind of situation. Yeah. So it paid off though. And by the, by the time my kids mm-hmm. were in school, it, we had enough in those 529 plans to meet what our goals had been to fund from those. Now we weren't trying to fund 100% of their college education from 529 plans. We had kind of our own, you know, structure on how we were going to do that. But I was really, really proud of the fact that it worked out almost, it was almost eerily well how it worked out, you know, and I, I did go back on my daughters. So 15, well, and then through college. So say 17 years or so, um, that she was invested that included the, you know, starting in the tech bubble crash and then investing all the way through the financial crisis. The average on her portfolio was a little over 6%. You know, if you looked at it in context and the fact that that you know, we were using the Michigan 529 plan with an, what they call an age-based portfolio. So it started out when she was three, it was all stock. Mm-hmm. By the time she was 18, it was, it was a much more conservative mix. I forget the exact mix, but, you know, sure. you look at that arc and now, you know, knowing what we do, 6% is, you know, to me, that was a pretty solid return. My, for my son, I never was able to do the math because we actually added some lump sums to his at a couple different points because then that was, you know, he was, um, the, the heart of when we were putting money in his was like after, you know, the mortgage mess up. And then later on when, when we were making a little more money, but I was able to put a couple lump sums in his during the middle of the financial crisis. So we yeah. were basically buying stocks on sale. All I can tell you is his return, like the return on his was north of eight and a half percent, but I've never... Wow. You know, I've never nailed it down, but you know, again, it was about it was, a lot of it was serendipitous timing. So yeah, you know, that's um, that's my my biggest like win where I can say this, you know, worked out as we planned, and you know, taking that long term view was really while it was difficult at the time as a young parent, it really did work out the way we wanted. 
to. I think it's awesome that you went from like the beginning of your career coming out of the tech and being like, <laughs> I don't know if we should do this or not. <laughs> right. you know, we're, we're telling everybody else we should to 2008 yep. when you're like, hey, fire sale, sign <laughs> right. up. Yeah, yeah. It only, <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> at that point I figured, yeah, nothing left to lose, right? But yeah. uh, <laughs> tongue in cheek, what, what you said the first time was better. But, uh, but yeah, uh, that's, that's, that has helped me when I talk to other parents with the goal of saving for college to be able to, again, point at how it worked out for us. And again, you know, kind of the opposite of the, of the other story, I've got to be careful to say, you know, timing had a lot to do with it and, you know, Mm -hmm. your results may vary, but just the activity, the, the, the routine of plunking that money in there every month without thinking about it was really the key. Yeah. Well, I think too, a a great point that you made in in kind of your success story here is oftentimes people feel like, well, you know, I can't, I don't, can't afford to contribute more than like 50 or a hundred bucks. And instead of just doing it when they're young, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you just kind of talk yourself out of it. Even if you start with a small amount and build on it over the years, it will Mm -hmm. accumulate, it will give you options. Um, Right. Right. And so I think that's a great job of just doing it. The psychology of it is such that you do it for six months and you've forgotten about it. And then then you can raise it again. And six months later, you'll have forgotten, you know, that now you're putting $100 away instead of 50. And, and pretty soon if you're budgeting well, I mean, to a point you, you can, you can keep raising that and, and the psychology works in your favor that way. Yeah. So. So, it is interesting yeah. how how easy it is to trick our minds sometimes on things like that, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So, just you know, do it for six months to, and you'll just learn how to live without it. Right. Yeah. And you won't even think about it. And <laughs> yeah. because it's just it's just gone. It's not there when you when you go to spend it. So right. yeah, that's um those are my that's my my biggest uh fumble and uh kind of my biggest um at least to this point uh success story. I uh Sorry to disappoint all the folks who were expecting it to be. Well, I shorted, you know, gold or Bear Stearns in 2007 right. or, you know, yeah. you know, bought, bought puts on uh, the S&P 500 and in uh, mm-hmm. the right time. Mm-hmm. But no, nothing fancy, nothing exciting. Just a uh, good old power of automatic, automated investing and uh, avoiding, you know, I, I think the big lesson I would say from, from, from the housing situation was, I think our biggest mistake was we saw something shiny and new that we wanted and we only paid attention to the narrative that supported it from salespeople Mm. and folks with, you know, not necessarily, you know, that were more than happy to talk to us about the possible good outcomes, but nobody ever, you know, pointed out the, the possible downside of it. That's a fantastic point, Dave. I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times, you know, we forget that, you know, realtors just have a lot of experience, but they have an incentive to sell you a house and Mm -hmm. they really have double incentive to get you to sell your house and buy another house, right? Yes. Uh, And the mortgage people love taking on new loans and they get incented to get you loans. And so having that, you know, what I always tell our clients is I want you to come to me with all of your financial questions because my job is to be objective, right? My job is to not get emotionally attached or incentivized by what you're doing and think more of it in terms of 
here's the good things that could happen. Here's the bad things that could happen. Let's weigh them. Let's make a plan B and then we'll make a decision and move forward. Exactly. And, uh, and not to say that your decision would change per se, but you probably would have thought about it differently too, you know? Right. And, uh, that's the key, you know, you don't want surprises. I think that's, that's one thing I would Mm. say with clients overall is if you, if you help them weigh the pros and the cons, at least the cons aren't surprises then if they happen, like, holy crud, no one told me this could be the, you know, well, Right. You know, it's within, it was always within the realm of possibility, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, Dave. Well, thanks for sharing today. This yeah. has been great. Well, your Appreciate turn will it. come, my friends. So, uh-huh. tune in for uh, next right. best and worst coming soon. All right. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, Dave. Gather around and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.